Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I am your host, Ray Harkins, and um, I'm sitting here with a new microphone, trying a little new mic, see how this sounds. But um, anyways, we're at episode number 48, and the guest this week is Doc Coyle, the guitarist from New Jersey metal band, God Forbid. I realized that I had another New Jersey metal band last week, so we're pretty metal as of late, but... uh, It'll be delving into some different stuff shortly, so keep your eyes and ears peeled. Anyways, um, propertyofzach.com. We'll get some business out of the way first. Uh, they are a great site. Go visit them. Visit them a lot. Find out about what bands are doing. Find out about what independent culture is happening and popping. Uh, they did some great coverage on South by Southwest. And um, yeah, just go there to be up to date on everything. Shout out to our editor, Tom Richfield. He is doing a killer job, and uh, hopefully the audio quality will keep on improving. I'm doing things now more professionally than I ever have, so it's awesome. And Tom's got great ideas, so shout out to him. Review the show on iTunes. You can drop some stars, or you can drop some sentences. Either way, uh, I've been noticing some people are kind and been dropping some you know, very nice reviews. And I really do appreciate that. I, I literally read everyone and go, thank you in my either in, in my head or audibly. Uh, sometimes if I know the person, I'm like, Hey, thanks on some social network. So anyways, keep on doing that. I really appreciate that. And secondly, I'll be doing this for a few shows and I apologize, but this is kind of just the one thing that I'm fixated on currently. So there's a website called theavclub.com, and they do a column called Podmass, which is basically reviews of podcasts. Um, and, you know, they do obviously the most gigantic, famous ones, but uh, occasionally they do a show where it says new to us, which is basically just like, oh, hey, this is a new podcast you should check out. I want this show featured on there. That would be incredible. So the only thing you need to do, the listener, uh, would basically be just email them. So the email address is podmass at avclub.com and just be like, hey, you should listen to 100 Words or Less. It's a great show. There's good interviews, blah, blah, blah. And I, I think, honestly, if maybe like 10 of you did that, that would be spectacular because I think that's all they would need in order to be like, oh, hey, someone should check this out. So yes, podmass at avclub.com. If you forget the email address, just find me on Twitter, whatever. I'll remind you. Anyways, before we get into the interview, I have do- dove yes, dove into a YouTube hole the other day. And if you haven't done that, I highly recommend it. You can get like, you know, an hour out of your day being like, "Oh my god, how did I end up here?" So for those of you that don't live in Southern California, because I am fairly certain that this guy was not nationally syndicated or had any sort of uh national awareness. He did appear on the Howard Stern show occasionally, but so there's a guy named Wally George. Go to YouTube, type in Wally George. You are up for a treat. But just to put it in context, the dude, it, it's kind of like, you know, when public access television was a thing. For those of you that don't even know what that means, like think of the movie Wayne's World, how they were doing a show from their basement. Um, and, you know, just similar to podcasts where it's like, hey, you know, maybe someone's listening and whatever. They would broadcast that on local television networks on off hours, either really late or it's usually really late. Wally George was a mainstay in the Southern California, uh, you know, public access television. I just always remember, you know, 9, 10, 11, having the TV on, you know, at like 
midnight or one in the morning. Maybe it was a little bit older, but it was absolutely incredible. It was basically like Jerry Springer before it was Jerry Springer, uh, but it was so lopsided. Basically, whoever the guest was that Wally brought in, he would just completely lampoon them. Um, and usually it was people that you could obviously easily lampoon from, you know, white supremacists to, um, you know, racists, whatever. Um, but I, I'm not going to explain it too much because the videos are just absolutely incredible. They basically got dudes from the beach to fill the audience. And it was just this, this total hangout atmosphere with this super electric host who was just basically chanting America the whole time. I don't know. It's just, it's amazing. And I'm really glad that I experienced this. And I'm sure so many of you have these other random stories of like, there was this guy on late night television and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not talking, obviously, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Johnny Carson, stuff like that. This is like deep dive. Anyways, go do that. And your life will be better because of that. Anyways, uh, Doc Coyle, uh, God forbid, they've been a band for a long time. And at this point, there should be no reason that they're continuing to put out records as far as the mass media, we recycle bands every 10 minutes mentality is concerned. But uh, they're an incredible band. I will regale a story to Doc in regards to the first time that I heard the band. But yeah, we talked about race because he, I mean, he's a black man and he plays in a metal band and that doesn't happen very often. Um, so we talked about that. We talked about longevity and, uh, his motivation to create art. Um, so yeah, he's a great dude and I hope you learned something from this because he definitely dominates the conversation, which is awesome because that's what I want on this whole show. So he definitely guides you through a lot of stuff. So check it out and I'll talk to you. really fascinating conversations yeah no that that's 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 a very good point too so yeah usually i like to start things off with just kind of uh my own personal sort of entry point into you know you as a person and you know your musical output over the years and stuff this it was definitely around the time when god forbid put out determination like it was shortly before that because being from the west coast like you know bands that were on the East Coast. Like, you know, it, it took a moment for the news to trickle out here to be like, oh, check this band out. They're awesome. But I distinctly remember, like, leaving a show at, like, the Key Club in Hollywood and being handed one of the Candiria, God forbid, uh, tapes, like a sampler tape with, like, two songs from Determination. The now um, legendary sampler tape. <laughs> dude, it, it's so funny because it's like, the, you know, you can always like, especially people like you and I have been involved for music for way too long where it's like you, you kind of forget how important those like, you know, samplers or whatever are where it's just like, that's like, you know, I still remember that. Like, <laughs> and so I remember listening to it and being like, holy shit, like, what is this? Because, you know, like, obviously most people will say to you, it's like, you know, you guys combined like a lot of the, you know, sort of hardcore elements that you know, a lot of bands in the mid nineties did, but then you obviously kind of pushed it forward with the love for, you know, the Swedish death metal and all that type of stuff. And I just, I just remember being so like taken aback and being like, why, why have I not heard of this band? And I need to find as much out as I possibly can. (laughs) 
So did, did, did I mean did that tape you find like more than one person has been like, oh doc, like that tape turned me on to your band. Well, it's that era of the band is is really kind of um, paradoxical in a lot in, in a lot of ways because it's it was the era in which a big portion of people found out about the band. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. also the, the era where we first started hitting the road and touring and just really like, we went for broke, you know, um, for some reason from our perspective, like that album cycle was kind of like, it didn't meet our expectations. So in, in a lot of ways, we never really got to connect with the, uh, the impact of that album, the way I think a lot of people did. And it didn't really become apparent to us till like several years later, after it came out that that determination had a had a really big impact on a certain sect of music fans. And then by that time, we had kind of went in another direction, mm-hmm. somewhat, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, uh, but that was you know it's funny you bring up the 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 sampler tapes. It's like that was two thousand one. So you really got to remember, you know, p- you know people having demo tapes at their shows was only like two years before that. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? So having an actual sampler tape of like Century Media Records and then obviously Candiria was a, you know, groundbreaking band. Yeah. You know? And that was like, we were like the new band on that sampler. Like, yeah. I mean, half the people were, were getting that, oh, let me check out these new Candiria tunes. And then they got uh, to check us out too. I remember they handed them out at uh, New England Metal Fest that year. Oh, yeah. And... But and that was back when, like, New England Metal Fest, like, you, if you had a good set in New England that had an impact in the heavy metal world, like, it's kind of spread around, like, yo, that band really killed it. And, you know, it had reverberations in terms of the industry. Yeah. And, you know, there was, it was a much smaller bubble, I'd say, of, uh, of influence. And, and it would take, like you said, a, a while before uh, things reached to the, to, to the West Coast, mm-hmm. you know, and there'd be, like, these little pockets you know of of scenes like where where people were kind of in the know you know it's like you know in like orange county you know so we didn't we didn't even know this at at the time and then like a couple years after that you know like atreyu took us on tour Mm -hmm. and they were like huge fans and they were like and they would like give us like you know we had taken avenge sevenfold out uh, like maybe like a year after determination came out and they were just giving us like all these stories of how like we're like legends in uh (laughs) like yo man you guys are huge in oc i'm like right sure right sure whatever <laughs> at, at, at the time we like on that part of the reason why we didn't didn't think that album was really successful was it actually sold a good amount of records i think mm-hmm. we had well, at that time i think we'd sold like 15 or twenty thousand copies which was really good for mm-hmm. an underground band but we, but we weren't really like doing really great headlining shows. Like people weren't really coming out to the shows, so it was hard to to to, to feel like how it was like that tour. We did a tour. It was us headlining, uh, bleeding through his main support, mm-hmm. and Avenged Sevenfold uh, opened. Sure. And this was this was like I think the end of summer two thousand two, and it was like fifty people every night just shot, and then and most of them were there for bleeding through. Right. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Sure. We're like, we're like, we sold all these records. We toured with Opeth's first tour ever with Nevermore. We toured Cradle of Filth in their first U.S. tour. We toured Six Feet Under and Lamb of God. We toured with Guar. We toured with Hatebreed. Right. You're like, you're like, we did all this stuff, but why is nobody coming to see us? (laughs) We did, we did every everything that we thought we could do. And at the time, we actually had the um, 
this management company called the Syndicate managing us, and they also managed Shadows Fall. Uh-huh. And Shadows Fall, you know, had put out Of One Blood like a year earlier and kind of did the same thing we did. You know, they did every tour, they busted their ass, and they had like, I think they had sold like 10,000 more records, but like that 10,000 to like our manager and the label was like, yeah, they're the big dogs. You guys are the, uh, you're the backup team. You know, we need you, you know? And they were like a little more commercial, you know, they had some of the clean vocals and stuff. And it was always kind of put in this, um, narrative that part of the reason why we weren't breaking through was because we weren't, we were a little too edgy, a little too heavy, a little too weird, you know? And I think somehow that, that might have burrowed into our brains a little bit when we were possibly like writing the next record. Yeah. You know? and, and that's, that's, it's a weird thing. Like, you know, you can never go back and kind of rewrite the, uh, the storybook on how, how a band ends up sounding like they're going to sound like or where they're going to be. But, um, I have, I have such an interesting relationship with all of our albums cause they're all so different and there's, and there was such a different mindset yeah. behind every, every, every album. And I think every mindset was legitimized. Sure. Well, yeah, you see, it's one of those things where it's like you see why the band reacted, how they did, like you said, with each record because of, you know, a set of circumstances, a set of experiences. So, yeah, no, I totally get that. But um, before before we dive too deep into that, you know, I want to know you, Doc. So, you know, born and raised, were you, uh, you know, born on the East Coast in Jersey? Like, does that where you kind of cut your teeth? Yeah, I was born, well, I was born in Rawway, New Jersey, um, but grew up in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Of course. Uh, which is uh, the home of uh, Rutgers University, which made it a uh, a really kind of a, a cool city because it's it, it was a small city. Like the, at the time, the population was only about fifty thousand people. It was you know the environment was pretty you know it was a collegiate environment. So even though you know I I never went to Rutgers, you kind of felt like you were you know there was there was, there was more culture there than I'd say some just like crap crappy ghetto in uh, in jersey mm-hmm. and and we also had like some neighbors you know that that were like grad students so we so it was it was kind of part of you know it was kind of the background the backdrop of uh growing up and it's you know i, I can't really even talk about growing up without talking about uh my brother dallas uh who was who, who was in, in in the band because he's only like a year older than me and we basically were like attached at each other's hips for from the time we were i was born till you know, we were 30 years old. So, right. right. What, what did, uh, so yeah, as you were, as you were growing up, well, is it just you two guys as far as like siblings are concerned? Yeah. Okay. And what did your, uh, what did your parents do like as you were growing up and like what was the, what was the family structure like? Well, the family structure was a little weird. So, so me and my brother are, are mixed race. We're, we're half black and half, half white. And, um, my, my father, uh, was and still is a, a piano player, and my my mother was a singer, and they actually met uh, as you know playing in the same band. Oh wow! Yeah, so this goes back to like you know the the seventies. My and my mother was like a jazz singer. You know they never they never got married. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you were to meet them today, you would think they were like they're about as different people as you could ever ever <laughs> ever meet. You know, sure. so they they split when I was like five, and then. Lived with my mother for a few years, and then eventually my bro- my father got custody, and we pretty much just lived with our father from the time I was like nine or ten till you know till I was growing up. Sure, um, sure. Obviously, as you were kind of you know growing up and started to understand, like, oh hey, like you know, 
my friend's parents are married or whatever. Like, you know, how did that sit with you? Or was it just like, oh, this is kind of normal for what I'm used to? Well, I think, I think, you know, we never had a lot, you know, like, I think when you're, when you're a kid and you're kind of poor, you don't really know you're poor, you know, <laughs> sure. you know, um, until you go around people that, that maybe have more than you, but, and still to this day, you know, I, you know, my approach to that is that, you know, you just, be thankful for whatever you 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 do have. If you as a you know as a, as a philosophy are always just kind of trying to keep up with the Joneses or are always focused on what you don't have, then you're you know, you know it's going to be very hard to be happy at anything. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you know, you know, so it, you know, it was, it was my, my father basically raising us by himself as a piano teacher. So he'd be he'd be gone all day. You know, we, you know, me and my me and my brother would kind of be left to our uh, to our own devices. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that he was he was doing his best, and I knew he loved us, and I, I didn't be, begrudge that at all. Like I don't know, like the, I think some of that kind of like uh, like baby boomer stuff, like oh my my parents weren't there for me. He didn't, dad didn't th- play catch with me, you know, cat in the cradle stuff, you know. Right. Um, that's cool, you know, and it's it's nice you're kind of you know taking your inventory, but being a parent's hard. Paying the rent is hard. Sure. <laughs> And you know, thing about my, my, my father, he also he had a teaching degree, so he he could have taught r- regular school. And, you know, he really wanted to run his own business. And my my father's a really really unique guy. He's uh, you know just a true artist. You know, and um, he he knows he's the most well read person I, I I know. He has a wall full of books, and he's actually read them all. So, <laughs> you know, cu- you know culturally, a guy he identifies with black culture probably more than he does with. Uh, with white culture, which is, which is very unique. But he, but I and I don't I don't mean that like in his in his mannerisms or like the way he dressed or anything. It's just that's his. Um, I knew when it was Louis Armstrong's birthday or Duke Ellington's birthday that would be on the radio. And my dad, you know, he he made sure to constantly be educating me in 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 some way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whether it was you know showing you know showing me and my brother the, the Marx Brothers or old Muhammad Ali fights. Or, you know, documentaries on the Holocaust or uh, the Great Depression, you know, and, you know, really kind of giving giving me as much uh, ammo in terms of so than I was getting at school. I yeah. Thought. Well, it's I mean, it sounds like obviously like not everybody, you know, even though, like you said, you know, you came from modest means. Your dad was obviously he understood that, you know, for whatever he couldn't give you monetarily, he was obviously trying to culture you know you and your brother and be like hey here's you know here's some cool stuff that you know you should be aware of and like you know because obviously it's like it's that's it's that delicate balance of like you know look like looking at how parents are all right i have to show my kids like what i would think i would define as cool and like you know what they should know but obviously not forcing it on them so they'll be like oh fuck you dad like i'm gonna get into my own shit you know that'll happen later obviously but <laughs> yeah, the thing is though my dad he was uh he at the same time he was listening to public enemy <laughs> and rage against the machine and pearl jam and nirvana like we like he was just a cool motherfucker, yeah. you know, like, and he still is, you know, like my dad, you know, my dad, this dude went to the library and took out Tupac CDs. And he's like, he's <laughs> like, Doc, you got to listen to this Tupac. This stuff is great. So good. <laughs> you know, yeah, the dude, the dude's just the, the shit. You know, he, you know, he played on our cup of our records. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he did uh, for Earth's Blood. He mm-hmm. did the, uh, the intro, the piano intro. And then he did... Uh, a piece on a song called "The Lonely Dead" 
on constitution of, of treason. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. That's so cool. Well, that that's, yeah, that's obviously awesome that you're able to, you know, experience that as a true family, so to speak. <laughs> Coin the term dad forbid. Right. <laughs> I love it. And so obviously as you were, uh, you know, kind of growing up and, you know, your, your formative years, like obviously for one, music was an important part of your life. Um, so, you know, as you started to transition to like high school and stuff like that, what sort of, you know, were you into sports or like what, what, what were you doing at that time? It was weird. Cause I, you know, if you look at me now, you'd think I would have been like a track star or, or football or something. Cause I'm, I'm six two, like 200 pounds in pretty good shape, but I, I had no coordination when I was really young. Mm-hmm. So like I tried mm-hmm. to play baseball and I couldn't do it. Didn't, didn't like it. And I was, you know, kind of you know, a little little kind of chubby kid or whatever. And then uh, my first year of high school, I discovered basketball and started playing. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't really good. I, it wasn't until my uh, sophomore year that I actually started playing on the team. And I was pretty, pretty obsessed with uh, with basketball. I still am. I still play. I do. Uh, I don't know if you see my NBA blog. I have. Uh, metal sucks, you know. So I'm, 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 I'm nerdy, nerdy about that. No, I think, you know, for me, I think about my, like my high school years as definitely being an awkward kid. And, and may, maybe that wasn't the way the world saw me, but that's maybe, I think how I saw me as, you know, and maybe t- to this day as someone who never truly fits in. Mm-hmm. And maybe that has something to do with being biracial. I'm also, you know, um, you know, I, I think there's, I, I have a, a loner streak in me and anytime a group of people coalesce around a set of uh set ideas i immediately become uh wary of it and suspicious and you know i just i i hate group think you know mm-hmm. even as a kid like i just didn't understand i didn't understand gangs i was like so what you hang out together for what i don't you know i i i, I never really felt the um I, actually the first time i felt comfortable somewhere was when i discovered the hardcore scene and to this day i'll tell everyone you know me and my brother we were metal guys we favored heavy metal music you know the, the, the way we got into music was metallica pantera guns and roses megadeth uh sepultura slayer and then we discovered the hardcore scene. You know, I would have described myself as a hardcore kid, mm-hmm. but a metalhead. Like, sure. music, musically, I still didn't even really like, even when I was going to hardcore shows every weekend, I didn't really even like that many hardcore bands. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more about, these are the first group of people that I actually feel comfortable around. Sure. Yeah, you, I, you, you gravitated towards the, the sense of community, because, you know, even though, obviously metal music has their own community it's far removed not, it's not far- at that time not at that time there was sure. not a there was no metal as far as living in central new jersey in the mid to late 90s there was no metal scene got it there were i didn't go my first show i ever went to was 1996 with uh, pantera white zombie deftones at uh what's now called the izod center uh where like the new jersey nets used to play mm-hmm. and you know huge you know whatever 12 13 000 people how many people were there and then the next show I went to was a hardcore show, and I didn't go to another like big metal show for probably like three or four years. Got it. Got it. Um, even though that was like my my roots, it was hard. It was hard to identify with that because it seemed so bigger than anything you could touch. There was there wasn't a lot. Of, I, I remember going to the Pantera show being scared, right? You know, and and like you watch the Pantera videos and stuff, and you're like, you know, I was worried there was gonna be like white power people there, and like. <laughs> You know, and you know, because that that was like the vibe it kind of put off. Like it didn't matter to me. Like it's not like I was like, oh, 
Pantera hates me or or whatever. It's just you know you definitely have these uh, you know there's so many kind of cultural avenues you have to walk down. You know it's like think, think about this. I was you know me and my brother two half black kids growing up in a city all black and Hispanic people with a white father who liked black culture, but then we got into heavy metal where there were no black people there. <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys were, it's like, you're like a, a niche of a segment of a niche. Like, <laughs> I think it's funny. What, so we went to high school, right? And we liked metal. You know, that, you know, by the time we got to high school, we had like discovered music and stuff. You know, when you're a little kid, you don't really have that kind of things. But we were, you know, because of the environment, it was kind of a secret. You know, there was really no one to talk about it with. I think I had one friend mm-hmm. that I could talk about metal with. Then we ended up going to private school with all rich white kids. And they didn't like metal either. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> they, they they liked, you know, Dave Matthews Band, you know, Biggie Smalls. And they were that thing of just never really fit quite fitting in right. any, any, anywhere um, and being, you know, somewhat of a um, an outlier. Yeah, no, that, that I could I could easily see that. Well, that, I mean, it's cool that you obviously were able to kind of insert yourself into, uh, you know, the, like you said, the hardcore community and be like involved in that. So did you always have a desire to be like, all right, I want to play in a band. I would like to play in a band with my brother, because like you said, you guys were attached at the hip. Like, you know, how did that genesis come where, you know, once you saw bands play, you were like, yo, I need to do this. Well, I just think, you know, and, and maybe you you identify with this a little bit. I think when being like being nerdy about something, when you're complete, like when you get into it, you're into it 100 percent, you know. Yeah. And that's yeah. how once we discovered guitar and started playing, we just sat in our uh, at home and just didn't leave the house. It's all we did was play guitar and listen to to metal and rock records. Basically, you know. Uh, so we so before we discovered guitar, we, me and my brother used to draw comic books. That was our that's what we were obsessed about. And so then we traded that obsession for for the musical obse- obsession, and which was cool because you know at least you know theoretically from from watching like Wayne's World stuff like that, you know you're like you know yeah that could probably get you laid. So that was kind of cool. You know there was something there was at least a cool factor to playing guitar. Uh, <laughs> so our best friend that we drew comic books with, his cousin. I guess they were like they like oh yeah they they jam they 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 play metal and you guys should go go jam with them so then like one day one Saturday afternoon we just went over to their house and and met Corey who's our drummer and, and Byron our singer you know and that was in 1996 so you know so essentially like I mean God forbid was like your first band like it was the first band. we ever played with that's Not crazy even, we never played with we never played with anyone else like. Outside of like, there was just some like uh, you know like like said like the college students like the grad grad students that are, were friends with our you know they were older they were like you know they were like adults and they were like hang, you know they were like in their mid late twenties and they like show us some guitar stuff but it wasn't like we were jammed but we never had any aspirations of like being in a band I think it's just this thing where you just, it just it just happened mm-hmm. and we jammed and it wasn't even good oh no <laughs> if if you were good I would question I would call you a liar <laughs> but you know we wasn't even good but. It was like I guess we could do that again, and we and so we kind of just periodically would would go back and keep jamming, and that developed into like recording a demo, and then that developed into another demo, and that developed into playing the show, which the show sucked, and we sucked, so we we kind of didn't do it for a while, and then me and we started jam- you know, and then we really me and my brother really started vibing with Corey, 
And then we we kept writing, and it was just a, it was a slow pro. But it was never there was never a goal of like we're going to be a band. I didn't think that was even a thing, right? That you could be. I I really liked playing. I think our only goal was just to be good because you know we were in you know we were in the scene. When we discovered the hardcore scene, we actually saw we saw some really good bands that we we could actually talk to the people. We could hang out with the people. You know, it was like I couldn't hang out with Pantera. I couldn't I couldn't sit in on Sepultura's rehearsal, analyze why they were good and how they got that good. You know, uh-huh. so we started. You know, so we just started going to a million shows and watching great you know the first show we ever went to was the Candiria show in 90 you know it was you know in uh yeah. 97 yeah. 96 or 97 and it was like this uh this band for the love of oh yeah I don't know if, so that so for the love of was like that was the band that inspired us to be good cuz they were the best band that we had ever seen like in person mm-hmm. at that time and that we wanted like we want to be like that so if you if you want to know about like early god forbid basically we're like all the classic metal influences you know the thrash the death metal the swedish stuff mixed with for the love of yeah well i think i think it's it's really interesting too because like obviously during the you know mid to late 90s like that's when like you were talking about the sort of the hardcore scene was definitely changing where it's like you know that's obviously when the term metalcore started to become like more prevalent and so it's funny because the you know usually you hear the kind of first band stories of like oh you know we just wanted to play like we could care less of like the execution of it um you know but you guys you know i like the fact that you guys took a different approach where we're just like we know that we're limited by our talents or lack thereof so but we just want to make this good i like i like that idea where it's like we just want to be good rather than hey like we just want to play we want to play a show like you know we want to be good before we really take it quote unquote out there, even though out there could mean just a show in a basement, obviously. Well, well the thing is though, individually we were good. Okay. Like we knew right away, like even though me and my brother, we hadn't been playing guitar that long, but we had been so dedicated about it by the time it's like the fucking Bill and Ted, when they like go in the time machine, they come back and they have beards and they can shred. Right. We were, we were 16. Like we went and we went in the time machine for like two or three years and we weren't great, but we noticed that we were pretty much better than most of the people in the hardcore scene. Got it. At the time, because, because A, because we were just nerds, you know, and B, our influences, like, at that time, like, p- people thought metal was dead. People could not believe that we were playing guitar solos. Yeah. They were like, yo, man, you guys play guitar solos, man. That's crazy, man. Right. Like, every- people don't understand, like, it was, like, even hardcore people were like afraid to admit they liked metal. The only metal band hardcore kids would admit they liked was Slayer. Slayer, right. <laughs> you know, and then everyone would cover Rain and Blood and then everyone would go crazy like you do a, a bomb in the pit. Right. That's <laughs> why someone, someone covers Rain and Blood now. I like literally put my nose in the air. It's like, man, dude, that, that, that shit was hacky like 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, you know, can't you, find, um, can't you find some other song? To, how about you just cover Roots? Like, do something else. Yeah, but you know, Th- Throwdown already did Roots. Exactly. Too, too, too good. So that was the first. We did uh, Ozfest with Throwdown, and uh, they they played Roots on it. I'm like, that ain't fair. You can't you can't play a song everybody knows. <laughs> That's funny. You're like, I, I want to revoke that. They were like a company, like inf- like inflating their stock artificially. Sure. It wasn't fair. <laughs> They were doing insider trading. <laughs> they did it so good too. Like they fucking sounded 
you know, in some ways almost better than Soulfly, how how good they did it. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love Dave Dave's voice. That dude's one of my favorite. Like his voice is one of my favorite like heavy metal singers ever. Oh yeah, he's got he definitely has a talent when it comes to that. Um, I definitely wanted to hit on the uh, the topic, obviously, like we were talking about of race because. You know, it was extremely interesting for people to, you know, once God forbid started to, like you said, make a name for yourself, hit the road. And, um, you know, when you were like the metal scene is notorious as far as like you were saying, the perception of like people viewing, you know, black people <laughs> like that. You know, I, I can't say it any plainer than that, where it was like, I don't know if they're actually, quote unquote, welcome at these shows, especially, you know, if you're talking about the whole South atmosphere. You know, did you did you yourself encounter any of that? Sort of like, uh, yeah, I mean, not as not like people were maybe coming up to you and being like, "Oh, I hate your band because you're black." Um, but you know, was that a vibe that you felt, or was it one of those things where it was just like, if you did feel it, you just pushed through it? No, I mean, not. I mean, New Jersey is, you know, the Northeast in general. I think is really diverse. You're used to being around everyone. Like I remember when I was in grade school, I was in like these um, advanced classes called gifted and talented. So everyone else in the school, they would switch classes every year. So they'd have different, different you know, they have different uh, kids. But I went from like third grade to eighth grade. I went, I had the same kid, same class. And it was me, one white kid, one black kid, one uh, Dominican kid, and one Indian kid. Like, like boys. And we were all friends. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what I grew up with. And I thought, I even back then... You know, and, and, you know, coming from, like, my dad, who is, you know, lefty as lefties get, and coming from my, my, my background, I thought, I thought that's the way the world was. I was like, yeah, we're all together. Martin Luther King, baby. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, you know, I, I, you know, I was like, you know, you know, it's like, does racism exist? No. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, I, you know, and that's the way I, I thought. I think that's something I, you know, and especially kids, you know. If you put kids in that environment, they don't think any different. It's like how you grow up. You know, if you grow up and you don't, there's no diversity and you don't know how other people live and the only thing you see is the news media or, you know, television or or movies, you're going to form your own opinions, especially if you have uh, parental uh, guidance in there that could be uh, bad or good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I mean. So I, you know, coming up, I never really that was never an issue issue for me because I think just the environment was fairly in, enlightened. And even as as a band early on, I think if anything, early on especially, it helped because at least it w- at least we had like a story, right? You know, whereas like not you know mo- a lot of bands they were just another band. Yeah. You know? f- five white dudes getting up there and playing and like that doesn't you know there's nothing really unique about that. Yeah. <laughs> The funny thing is, if you go, like, I mean, I don't know if you can find, but you, you find, like, an old, like, show review when we first came out. Like, you like, you know, like, so this guy came up, and I think they're going to start playing reggae or something. And they come out, and they cover at the gates. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. Like, it was, like, there was, like, a, a factor of people just being stunned. Right. That that's what came out of the people. You know, the, it, just, it just broke a lot of conventions. And even to this day, I mean, outside of maybe suffocation but even that there was really only two black guys in the band where they're just you know we might be the only one of the one of the few like you know really mostly black bands in extreme music you know that i i know about even to even to this day and we never we never quote unquote blacked up our music right (laughs) now 
you know, it wasn't it wasn't like, all right, man, we're gonna throw a hip hop beat in here and get a DJ. Right. We were never trying to appeal to black culture. Our um, you know, musical preferences were real metal mm-hmm. and was was real heavy, heavy music. And it wasn't like we didn't like hip hop. You know, we did, that's where we grew up. You know, we all you know, if you come hang on God forbid, we were listening to Wu Tang and we were listening to Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and NWA. We liked all that stuff. We liked everything, you know. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what we wanted to play. Yeah. Um, no, for sure. I mean, I think that that definitely makes sense from the context of you know where where you were coming from. And obviously, I, I know you heard the joke being thrown around about God forbid, obviously being true black metal. And like, I know that <laughs> we kind of we kind of that was like a that, that's something people would say like kind of like talking. Hey, you guys are the best black metal band I've ever seen. <laughs> right. And it, it was like, yeah, yeah, real funny, motherfucker. You right. Know? Right. And. But then we made a T-shirt basically coining that. And we basically came with that idea to steal uh, Demo Borgir's kind of imagery, mm-hmm. but then use it for us. So we took their pentagram they had on the Death Call Armageddon album and then put like an Africa symbol behind it um, mm-hmm. and then superimposed our faces onto like real black metal dudes' bodies and <laughs> gave, gave each other like black metal names. Just like – Of course. It's one of those things like – poking fun at yourself and totally and that's what like i i mean i always know that anytime that sort of came up like as far as you know if if someone would mention it like a message board and like to try to be offensive or whatever it's like you know that no one like just because you guys address it and you're not you know bashful about it it's one of those things where it's like yeah you know it's a joke like i get it that's funny (laughs) yeah i think for us it's it's never you know it's not something we we really spend a whole lot of time thinking about i think you know, perhaps maybe five or six years ago when the, you know, the band was really, really active and, and really kind of on that verge of possibly breaking out to that next level and becoming a really, really big band. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. I, I think they were definitely analyzing how do I break the band? How do we market the band? How come we're not, you know, this band is selling X amount of merchandise and we're selling this amount? Why? You know what I'm saying? Like I was really trying to break down you know, how come we weren't maybe making as much progress as a Shadows Fall or a Lamb of God and stuff? And, and you know, and, and to this day, like, I, I still wonder, you know, if race had something to do with that in terms of at a, um, you know, in, in a hateful level. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that you go and play Columbus, Ohio on a Tuesday and, the, you know, the, and the people that come out to that show, they just might personally, you know, and we, we did gigs, you know, like that Six Feet Under tour, us and Lamb of God. The Lamb of God was basically just as well known as we were, but they were just connected better, sure. you know, and maybe there's something there where you may, maybe you might connect a little more with something that you just, that you personally just identify with. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just having, it's like being the Jonas Brothers. It helps that you're young trying to connect to young people you know it's just the identifier factor yeah Um, well you you look you look at someone and obviously if they like look like you and they dress like you it's like there's that immediate you know whatever i I don't even know if i'd call it a level of trust but yeah like you said an identifier yeah or and, and it's and you could even you know go and that's in a sense marketing it's like once we started doing all the metal tours and stuff coming out of the hardcore world you know we started to quote unquote dress more metal and to try and kind of clue into the metalheads, I'm like saying, "Hey, we're a metal band over here," and that's just a way of like, like, at, of, of identifying yourself, so people can say, "Oh yeah, they're they're one of us." 
and and that you know and and, and even all those bands that 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 came out of that scene in the hardcore scene where even if you sounded metal, the bands didn't look metal. Sure. You know, sure. it was like, you know, it was short hair, it was like button up t-shirts and, you know, guys look like emo guy, you know, like USC Zayo and they look like emo kids, you know, <laughs> playing like super, super heavy, heavy, heavy music. And it was like all, you know, for us, especially early on, it was like that dichotomy of trying to balance where we came from and then trying to transition into being like a straight up metal band. Now, I, I still to this day kind of question how if we if we actually even manage that mm-hmm. well. Right. Um, well, it's it's funny because not to interrupt your train of thought, but I, I've always like in working with you at Century Media, and then also just obviously watching your band progress throughout you know the career is the fact that um, I've always like especially from you know in working with you and seeing how you operated business wise, I always really did respect the uh, the mindset in which you approached these you know, everything with the band. Like you were always realistic um, and you were very calculated in your approach. Um, and I, I think that was uh, like, you know, even hearing you just talk about it right now, it's like, you, you, you know, there, it, it's never coming from a point of anger. Like you don't, you're, you're obviously not reflecting on how the band has performed and you're like, oh, well, fuck that. Like, oh, because obviously that just will make you a bitter, jaded person. But yeah, I just, I, I find that that whole, thought process like you know really interesting because you know all you're doing is just asking questions like oh i wonder what would have been if this was different you know well i mean you can it's that's a tough game to play you yeah. know because i think everyone in their life can do that you say well what if i would have went to this school or what if i would have moved here what if i wouldn't you know would have dated that person you know and you know truth be told your life would be different and it's 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 hard to say but all in all you know i think things and you know are are the way they are and i'm not you know I, i'm pr- you know I'm the catalog i'm proud of all of our all of our albums we worked really hard in every single one of them and tried to do something that made us you know some kind of statement on it you know and yeah just being you know like you know being who we are you know from a race standpoint like i, like I did a documentary called um electric purgatory you know kind of about the the plight of the black rock musician and i went to some random show in, in in Brooklyn and, and you know and, uh, and a black musician came up to me said he saw me in the documentary and how you know inspired he was and was really happy that we're like kind of you know waving the flag and you know little, little things like that you know I think you know or even like if you watched Metal Headbangers Journey oh yeah and he did like the um, you know the, the heavy metal family tree and he had you know us in the new wave of American heavy metal and to me that means hey we're part of history. And that 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 means something, you know, to me. Yeah, no, for sure. And the um, another interesting thing too, too, because um, obviously when you know you guys were doing the you know largest festivals, you're touring with every band, and you know there there was a lifestyle that was synonymous with. I mean, there, there, regardless of what musical scene you're in, you know, it's the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll type of stuff. Um, and you know, even though I'm, I'm sure your your band had its fair share of fun times, you guys never seemed, um, I guess swallowed by that or like you know that the focus was lost even you know if you were obviously participating in some of those uh finer things in life quote unquote <laughs> um uh, i don't know I, I mean we we were a pretty hard partying band like when we did Ozfest, we everyone came to our bus i don't know i think we did enjoy that <laughs> oh yeah no no I, i'm not saying that you did not right Right. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, but it. it I guess it, I, from my perspective and just an outsider's perspective, um, it didn't seem like uh, you know you you were swallowed by it in the sense of 
um, you know, that there was, uh, you lost focus on what you were doing in regards to the way that the band was operating. Hope not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't know if it's tough for you to have a perspective on that, um, just because that, that time may have been so hazy for you. But uh, the, um, yeah, just the, that's the perception that I got where it was like, because obviously you see a lot of bands, especially younger bands, once they start to kind of get a taste of success, however large or small that success may be, um, you know, sometimes it's like they end up drinking themselves into oblivion, you know, and maybe you guys did that, but you were just able to kind of turn the corner, so to speak. I think that's much harder to do now because of the way the music industry is now in order to even get anywhere you have to be kind of self-sufficient and there's 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 very few um caretakers you know like back in the day you know guns and roses they could be heroin addicts and drunks but they had you know they had a million dollar record deal and the and the label was invested in the band and they knew that that's oh these are the way rock musicians are and they were they were willing to spend a bunch of money to keep them afloat to protect their investment and then management gets involved and the management babysits the band Mm -hmm. and now there's th- that security blanket doesn't exist. Those big contracts don't exist. You know, other people aren't necessarily there to um, facilitate your your bad habits. And as a band, you have to be a good accountant these days. You have to be a good. You have to be able to web designer. You have to be you know do your own t shirt designs and make sure you know and run. You have to be able to you know do the social network. You have to basically run your operation well on your own before labels even want to touch you. And then once they do touch you, like I said, the, the the advances aren't what they used to be and the leash isn't as long as it used to be. So in this environment, I don't think we ever would have had it. Guns N' Roses probably would not have survived today. Bodley Crew would not have survived because there's not enough money. Yeah, you know? yeah. So now the bands that break through are like bands like Periphery and like, you know, Protest the Hero. They're nerdy about their music, but they're also nerdy about the way they run their stuff. They're very organized and very diligent. And I think that's the model, at least for underground music. I mean, I think there's still, you know, there still are kind of more, um, you know, maybe seedier rock and roll bands that have a little more of that, uh, that swagger, but they're not quite as prevalent as, as, as they used to be. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a very good point. And like you were alluding to earlier in regards to obviously, like you said, you know, you were, you played in a band with your brother. That's never easy. Like, I don't care, like, how close you are to a sibling. Um, I mean, I'm an only child, and I can look at that and be like, holy fuck. Like, the fact that you guys were able to, honestly, last as long as you did. <laughs> because, I mean, so he separated from the band. What what year was that? April 2009. Right. And so, the, like I said, the fact you were that... There. You were there, right? That's I, when you were- I was. That's when I was taking care of you guys. And, I mean, I remember that all, like, going down and, you know, hearing about it. I definitely... Um, like, honestly, like I said, I was surprised just from an outsider's perspective that that was able to last as long as it did because just of your the sheer proximity to one another. You know, you guys were brothers. You lived it. And like you said, you were attached at the hip. So what what do you think made it last as long as it did? Because <laughs> at, oh. at some point, obviously, it would dissolve, but and not in a bad way, but it just happens. Yeah, me, well, me, A, me and my brother were intertwined. In, in, like, in, in, a, in a lot of ways... Up until when I was like 25, me and my brother were almost like married to each other. Like we didn't have girlfriends and stuff. Like, <laughs> right. like and I, I don't, you know, I mean, we were like hugging up on each other. It was just we were so dedicated to like what we were doing in, in the in the big picture that everything else was was peripheral and it was on the on the on the back burner. I mean, we, I mean, we we shared the same 
we like we lived in the same room until we were like 22. We 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 shared the same wardrobe, you know. So um, good. Did you have bunk beds? That would make it even better. <laughs> I mean, when we were we, we were way younger, but there was like a a codependency there mm-hmm. that wasn't probably healthy as adults that would eventually have to kind of work its way out, you know, and it, and, and maybe it, it didn't maybe it couldn't have have worked its way out in a clean way. So maybe that was kind of bound to happen one, one way or another because you just you grow up and you realize, oh, I need to like kind of live my own life and do, you know, and, and you so you get the urges of what grownups really want, want to do. And Dallas just went hard the opposite direction and got married and had a kid. And, you know, he'll you talk to him, he'll say he basically had the kid so he could leave the band because there was no other way that he could he that he said he, he told me he couldn't leave the band like normal. He couldn't just be like, hey guys, I got to like because it's it's a it's a it's a calling. It's 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 one you know we, you know we thought we you know we really thought we were gonna be one of the biggest bands in the world. Right. You know, um, the, you know we we thought there was like a you know so I think the reason why why it lasted so it was you know our, our obviously our our connection, but there was a chemistry you know in in the in the band that was you know and musically that was pretty un, undeniable. Uh, no, I, I I get it. Yeah, basically it was just like. You guys, I mean, obviously, most humans come to this point when they are, like you said, you feel like you want to grow up. Your brother Dallas had to have a monumental event, such as having a kid, in order to be able to like separate himself from everything he's known for so long. And, and keep in mind, it wasn't just him. We had the same five members from 1998 to 2009. <laughs> right. So that, I mean, so there, there was a a family construct. And it, there, you know, there is a, a much, you know, you know, far more than like a, um, you know, a pragmatic reasoning to be, be, be together. There was, you know, there's deep emotional connections there, right. you know, that it's just, it's not this easy thing to say, oh, you know, for anyone just like, yeah, fuck you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, you know? Um, so, there was, you know, that was, that was my entire adult life. You know, I started touring when I was 20 years old. And, you know, and I just, and I did it, you know, my last tour was two months ago. Right. So, <laughs> you know, so that's, that's my adulthood. You know, yeah. that's, that's my you know adult ed- education. That's my experience. You know, I don't, I don't really know anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have any sense of, I mean, obviously now, like you, like you said, God forbid, you know, I mean, you, you, you still tour and you tour when it makes sense. Cause obviously, like you said, you know, people are at different points in their lives where, you know, they want to dedicate their time to other endeavors or whatever. For for you yourself, where do you want the trajectory to take you? Because I mean, you've always you've always struck me as a very obviously ambitious person and a person that will be involved in music no matter what. You know, so what 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 I guess what does the future hold for you personally? Where would you like to end up in you know five ten years or whatever? Currently writing music for a, a rock project that mm-hmm. like basically I've, I've you know this whole time I've been into metal I've equally been a big fan of of rock music. You know, so but I never really had much of an outlet to really to really ex- ex- explore that. Um, so I was I was working on a project with uh, Tommy Vexed, who was in Divine Heresy, and then that didn't end up working out. So I I basically still had, but I had a bunch of material. And I discovered a singer, this guy named Ravi Orr from uh, Philadelphia, and uh, I guess I, I you know the way I kind of describe it, it's like. Uh, Kind of like Muse with with uh, Chris Cornell singing. Okay, some some you know. So I've been kind of slowly uh, 
you know, ch- ch- chipping away at that. He lives kind of far away, so we're kind of like, you know, file trading. Um, that's something I'm really, really excited about. As far as like, God forbid, I'm I'm not really sure what's going on right right, right now. I think everyone's kind of dealing with their own their own lot in life. Right. Well, right, you, right. you definitely get to. I mean, I, I don't care who you are. You definitely get to a certain point where um, you know you have to you you take a inventory of your life, and it's like, well, like the band is still important to me, but like there's also this other stuff because you've become older that is also important as well, and you want to experience that rather than like. You know, all right, let's do the same U.S. tour we've done for the past ten years of our lives. Like, <laughs> well, it was really like it was really important. Like, I don't know if you heard the last album, the one we did for, for for Victory, but like we worked really, really hard on it. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy of it. I'm really proud of it. And so the fact that we um that we that that that, that we did and it came out great. You know, as far as what's what's going to happen, you know, with me, like after Dallas, basically when Dallas quit. Then we did like another six months of touring, and at the end of the Mayhem Festival, my girlfriend broke up with me, and I basically ha- I had like a meltdown basically because I was like I didn't care. like I almost I basically almost quit the band like you know at that at that time F- found a way to kind of um, you know move forward with it, but it was also like ever since then it's kind of like all right what if this band doesn't work out because I never really thought about it before you know I- I'd always like kind of assume that, that that that's what I was going to be doing, you know? So it's really, for me, it, it's still a, a process, but just actually asking myself the question, what do I want? Because I, I, when I was younger, I never really had to ask that question because yeah. like I, said, I didn't plan on being in the band. It just kind of happened. I just, I just kind of rode the wave of life and it took, and it took me somewhere pretty cool and pretty unique, but I never sat, you know, and I, you know, I think, you know, and then like, you know, a few years ago, it's like a lot of the, uh, that kind of like self-help, you know, the secret type of literature kind of moved into the, um, you know, cultural f- forefront and this idea of like being able to kind of manifest your own reality, you know, in a lot of, in, so I, you know, so I think I've been in trying to infuse some of that, like, all right, what, what do I want? And that's a, that's an odd thing. I think I, I think I'd suffer a bit from, uh, option paralysis. Oh yeah, sure. Where you're like, you know. Because America really is amazing. Like, you really, it sounds, you know, like a cliche or a platitude, but you really can do whatever you want, you know. Right. Unless, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, you probably, you know, aren't going to be joining the NFL anytime soon. But in general, there's, you know, the 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 world is your oyster. You know, there's a lot of things you can really do if you're just willing to go for it. But figuring out what that one thing or, or whatever, or kind of reassessing where I'm, I'm going has been a really interesting process. I think I've discovered that a that I I want to play no matter what. Actually, I, I uh, subscribe to you know Bob Left Sets. Of course, yes. So I, I subscribe to his his new newsletter. I try to read it uh, every day. And one thing he says I, that really resonates with me is just the the idea that don't do this unless you have to. And you hear actors say that say, say, say that too. You know, or comedians. You know, it's like this. You know, the arts are not for you unless you're willing to bleed for it, unless you're willing to suffer for it. Right. Uh, because there is no, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, theoretically, you know, there's a possibility of that, but that can almost never be your motivation because that's, that doesn't lead to good work. You know, there's, there's even like scientific studies on like uh, creativity and, and um, uh, output. Like if, if you motivate someone with money, Creative work is actually worse 
The only thing that does better is like uh, like physical speed and production. You know, anything where they can exert more energy. Sure. You, you can motivate the money, they'll get more, more done. But when you actually have to activate the brain and get critical creative thinking, money as a, as a motivating factor actually stifles creativity. The fact is we create for the incentive of the creation itself. And that's something I've just really tried to hone in on in, in not necessarily like what I want or where I want to be, but what what would I be happy physically doing all the time? Yeah, that's such an important thing for I think people to understand. Because I mean, obviously, like if someone told you that in high school, like you know, that could that would have done everybody well. And so it's like I think that because you're able to have these sort of like perspective changing conversations, you know, it's nice to be able to wrap your head around something and be like, oh yeah, like it doesn't matter if I get paid to create this thing. You know, hopefully one day, maybe that would be awesome. But as long as I'm comfortable in what I'm creating and what I'm doing, everything else will kind of fall into place after that. And I like I, that. That mentality is really appropriate. Well, I think it's I think it's appropriate for uh, creating good art, but it might might not necessarily be appropriate for for life. <laughs> you know, which is part. You know, I you know right now I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have kids. I'm I'm just staying. I'm staying with family right now, and I'm I basically having gone long periods of my life without having to work a regular job and then kind of like, you know, doing a little this here, doing that a little, little there, trying to figure out, all right, do I just get a regular job and just do the thing and kind of put everything this on the back burner? Or do I kind of like just work X amount so that I can use my other time to work on my other creative projects? And it's a, uh, it's a tough balancing act. And it's, I think what I'm going through is, um, is common, you know, of anyone who's compelled to 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 be a creative and balance that with actually trying to live a somewhat normal life. Yeah, no, I I I, I agree, and I think it's uh, I think it's great that obviously that's where your head is at, and you know you'll be known that whatever you do, you'll obviously quote unquote be all right because you know you're going to be pursuing something you're passionate about because you've done that's all you've known for your entire life. So good. Good job, Doc. Good job, Doc. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I, I need the encouragement. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, yeah, for the sake of time, I won't. Uh, I won't keep you any longer. Um, yeah, thank you for doing this, dude. I really appreciate it because you obviously are uh, a very thoughtful person and well spoken. And that's uh, usually two of those things don't always go together. So <laughs> I'm working on it, man. I'm. I the part of the reason I wanted to do this, I was saying, because I'm looking to possibly start my own podcast. So yeah, no, I think you would really enjoy the. I mean, you would really enjoy the format, and I know that you would provide compelling content. So I encourage it. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, no problem, dude. Well, um, spectacular. Well, it was nice catching up, Doc. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. All right, bye, dude. All right, there you go, Doc Coyle. Good dude, right? Definitely has an interesting story. Um, I know I learned a lot of things, and uh, it's cool just to have that unique experience within independent music. Because yeah, I don't. I think a lot of us are just you know white guys and girls, and don't experience that type of stuff. Of like, oh okay, like I just happen to play in a scene where I am the niche of the niche of the minority. But anyways, Doc is a great dude. Go check out God Forbid stuff if you've never listened to them before, because I think you would find some enjoyment out of it. Um, anyways, until next week, be safe, everybody.